My name is Hannah McGill and I'll be chairing a session on a time of anxiety and I'd like to welcome our panel. Um, over at the end there we have Kevin Williamson. Kevin's a writer, an activist, a performer, curator, um, put together the legendary Rebel Inc. magazine and publishing imprint, co-founder of Bella Caledonia and now one half of Noiriki, which is a great rolling performance juggernaut of spoken word and music and film. Um, shortly to make a very big impression at Hull's 2017 City of Culture with the festival Where Are We Now? Um, Linda Irving is with us from NHS Lothian. Linda is the Strategic Program Manager for Mental Health and Wellbeing. Um, Linda Radley, I've got two Lindas, so I'm going to have to, uh, Linda one and Linda two. Um, Linda's a playwright originally from Cork. Um, much of her much celebrated and awarded work deals with issues of identity and how people react to the times in which they live. She also works a lot in community and health and educational contexts. Um, Tawana Sitoli <laughs> is a poet, a performer, a musician, originally from Zimbabwe, now living in Glasgow. His work looks at identity and culture and the building of self-esteem. So I'd like to begin by asking the panel about the premise, about the idea that we are living in particularly anxious times, whether you agree with that and what factors you think might, what particular factors might influence that. <laughs> Kevin, why don't you start? Um, i tell a quick story. Sure. Right. Just to give you an idea of what where I'm coming from on this and also it's the dust of everyday life so this is basically my Tuesday two days ago I was thinking about this conference and my daughter who works in the arts she's a trained ballet dancer who now works teaching aerial she'd forgotten her bag she lives in South Queens for 11 leave and she asked me to deliver it at nine in the morning so I jumped in my car headed towards the fourth bridge and beautiful day drove over, dropped her bag off, she lives in a little wood. Uh, she wasn't awake because I couldn't get in for a coffee. It was kind of great. And then uh, I went out and had a wander and there she lives in this little alcove away from everything. I hadn't at this point. Normally when I wake up in the morning I have this thing that goes, I, I would like to transmit everything that's crap into the world into your head. It's not a mental illness, it's Twitter. <laughs> I, decided, I decided just to leave this aside for, for the moment. I didn't look at it. Uh, and I just had a wander in the coast and I saw a sea otter and I was like, wow. And then, you know, there's just this beautiful, calm little bit where they get uh, dolphins, we've seen whales. She lives, it's, it's very secluded. And I thought, I'd love to just stay here for the next couple of hours away from all the nonsense of the world. But I had too much to do, so I jumped in my car. It's nine o'clock, driving back across the fourth bridge, switched on Radio Scotland. Uh, the detritus of everyday life, the daily whingeathon, it's known as K. Adams' show. It's like, ah, no. So I switched that off, went over to Radio Classic FM, it was a handle concert. I was like, oh, yeah, that's nice. So I ended up back in the city. So the day, so I thought, right, good, I've got a nice day. Next thing you know, I get a text. Oh, Theresa May's called the general election. Oh, great. <laughs> I suppose I'll have to respond to this, got in touch. I'm, I'm working with this guy who's doing a film. This is not a long story, I'm coming to the end. <laughs> so it kind of, you know, I was trying to juggle all these balls and then Irving Welsh said, fancy coming to see a play tonight. It's about a digital dystopia. It's called Girl in the Machine. And it's okay, right? So we went along to see that. Uh, amazing play. It's on at the Traverse just now. And 
it was really, this is not a happy play. This is, uh, it, it feeds into the, a lot of the anxiety around digital technology and smartphones. Smartphones are the evil that came into our pockets in 2009 and now have us plugged in, connected to everybody, even though we can't get rid of them. And we watched that and then after that I got another text out of the blue. Uh, a friend of me in Urban's who had uh, died in 2010, uh, committed suicide. Uh, had left all his work and a publisher wanted to speak to us about it. So myself and Urban and the publisher went and met and we had a chat, had a few drinks after the play and talked about the idea of publishing all this stuff. So hopefully this is going to take place. So that was my Tuesday. And I found that art, life, politics, anxiety, questions of mental illness, because it's not just the, the extremes of what happened to our friend Paul, also my daughter, the stress she goes trying to work in the arts and make a living and dance, there's just no jobs for her, she's got a degree, so she's having to scrape a living, she can't live in Edinburgh, it's too expensive, that's why she lives in North Queensbury, just across the bridge, in a kind of commune, commune type thing, a collective thing, and it just impinges on you every day, so this is not a theoretical thing on the dust of everyday life, it's just there all the time, you meet it and it comes into your life from outside and I think it's accelerating now, I mean there are other people here, I'm not going to hog the mic here, but it, I find it all comes at me all the time, every single day, it's not something you can get away from, you can switch off your smartphone and move into the country, I think people need to go into the countryside more away from the city and people, it really is part of what, you know, we're dealing with, but uh, there's no there's no point to this story, apart from just a snapshot <laughs> of the chest. <laughs> Linda, do you, do you think the times that we are in right now are particularly conducive to that sort of sense of feeling beleaguered, feeling more than usually anxious? Yes, and I think a huge part of it has to do with the amount of time we spend being measured and the amount of time we, amount of time we spend um, voluntarily measuring ourselves. So there is an algorithm that is tracking my everyday, my every, my every statement online and predicting my future. But also, you know, I am not, but I might be um, jogging every morning and mapping my journey and comparing it to my friends and posting an Instagram picture of myself doing yoga on a rock and <laughs> while, while actually inside I might be crying and I suppose, that, that, again, I don't want to, I suppose I don't want to harp on too much about um, digital technologies because there are some really wonderful things about digital technologies as well, um, but uh, I kind of, I'm working this week with a group of young people, we're making a play together at RCS, they are master students and I really feel like there is a big social secret that we all have, which is that we are all anxious quite a lot of the time. And I think that anxiety sometimes um, works as a way of keeping a system going whereby we are um, often ashamed, we are not necessarily talking to each other, we are more inclined to reply to a text to meet up with somebody with a maybe next week when I'm feeling slightly better about where I'm at, and then we are to actually have that human contact. Um, we are afraid to say that we're failing. I think this generation are in a situation where they're constantly being told that if they just want something enough and work hard, they will get what they want. And then they are meeting a situation where there is no clear path to um, affordable housing, there is no clear path to employment that is more than temporary, more than transient, there is no clear path to how to be an adult for them, I feel. And yet they are snowflakes if they complain.
Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we're working on and trying to to talk about. And and I and I feel like there's something about that whole soup that means that our ability to actually feel like we can do something about it and actually collectively do something about it is jammed somehow and we feel stuck a lot of the time. Linda? Other Linda? <laughs> Um, I'm feeling really anxious because I haven't prepared anything apart from a, a quote that I read the other day, which was, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And that has struck such a chord with me because I spent the other day probably a bit like you, Kevin, kind of raging at the television and thinking, I'm really pleased we're having another election because that might actually about good things because I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> but there was something for me about the, the two speakers, the, the, the two performers, um, really struck two different things for me. One was about the expectations that we have of ourselves, which are just so unbelievable sometimes. And for every time that I've come to something like this, and in my day job, I spend a lot of time talking to people. And what do I do when I get home at night? I focus on the one thing I maybe didn't do good enough or the thing that I did that wasn't really quite right, or some random words that came out of my mouth at kind of the wrong time. And the um, second lady, for me, what that meant, hearing that was about the ability of people to connect and where, what have we lost? We've lost so much about simple human touch and being nice to people and being a bit more kinder to ourselves and kinder to each other. And all of these things that we're losing, I think, are what are contributing to anxiety, over-medicalisation of the human condition. We have got so many conditions and so many diagnostic categories now. We've got big, big volumes about what it means to be mentally ill. And sometimes I think what I'm doing in the job that I have is talking, using words like kindness and using words like love and bringing in a different vocabulary to how we think about um, mental health care and mental health services. You were nodding your head a lot there, so it's things that you relate to. Yeah, uh, just like to uh, thank Paula and uh, Sky for um, really uh, opening up really well and, and, and highlighting a lot of uh, things that are a problem for for us. I I just uh, because I, I'm someone who. We all we all love language, and we, we, we look at language closely, you know. And um, at SEAL, there's, there's a lot with the language we use that actually because the interesting thing about interesting thing about dust is we don't notice it uh, yet. It's it's there present all the time. So, uh, for example, we don't notice that we always say we are fine when we are not really, you know. Um, I play a little uh, game with uh, <laughs> my colleagues, you know, they'll ask me, how do you play it? They say, I'm not thinking very well. And people are sort of surprised <laughs> because we, we use greetings as, oh, you are, I'm fine, and then we just carry on. We don't want this kind of uh, chink, you know, oh, there's a problem, uh, you know. So um, I think even that alone uh, kind of sets what what um, we struggle with. In terms of, you know, anxiety, it's there all the time. I feel that we, uh, it's interesting Kevin to talk about the phones. Um, 
I feel we are part of a contamination chain just now. Um, I don't know how many people are on WhatsApp or whatever uh, platform you're on. We're on multiple uh, platforms. I, I keep noticing myself uh, contaminating other people with anxiety-laden <laughs> messages. You know, you get something, you're so riled up about it, and then what do you do? You know, you send it to somebody else. <laughs> So then, you know, so do you write them, kick the wall So, yeah, it, it, it propagates. Um, some of you mentioned the particular political circumstances that we're living through at the moment. Um, I wonder, Linda, is there a sort of measurable increase in people reporting mental health issues in times of extreme social change? I know that's probably quite hard to measure, but is that something that you work with or that you're aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got more and more people accessing mental health services. Um, but my own view would be that we've got more and more people accessing mental health services, but some of the problems that people are coming with are really not to do with mental illness, and mm. um, to do with things that have maybe happened to people in the past, the life circumstances that they're living in, the lack of opportunity they have, in a large part due to poverty and inequalities that are experienced on a daily basis by people. So there's something for me, and this is maybe a bit controversial, but this is an arts festival. Um, in terms of when we talk about reducing stigma, what is it that we actually mean by that? Because there's something around, there's certain words that we don't really talk a lot about in Scotland, and we certainly don't talk about them a lot in healthcare. We don't really talk about poverty a lot, and the impact, the real lived impact of poverty, and we don't really talk about class. And often a lot of the people that treat people who are coming and using mental health services are so far removed from the class or the culture that that person is experiencing and thinking, how is that treatment valid? Because if you don't understand where the person's coming from and you don't understand where they're going back to, how is that going to be effective? And you mentioned over-medicalisation and then there's the idea that you just medicalise a problem rather than looking at the, the real sources of it. Is that maybe where artists can come in? I don't know. Linda, do you want to speak a little bit about how you think maybe art can help with these things that might otherwise seem like something for a doctor to deal with? Yeah, I suppose um, part of what I am always trying to do is trying to, so, is trying to have a conversation with an audience where they sit there and think, yes, this is a feeling that I have, that we collectively have, that maybe by putting it on stage and, and helping them to sort of feel like the character or identify with the character, or that, that somehow that starts and kind of a, creates an opening by which we can actually speak about that and, and admit it um, in, in situations where, you know, the language, the neoliberal language of self help is about, you know, uh, if you are feeling anxious, it's a problem with your thinking, rather than it's a problem with the society that you're in, or it's a, it's a combination of, a, of com lots of complicated factors, but not necessarily your fault. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we have, that what we're trying to do at the moment is to sort of um, uh, create a character who has multiple voices uh, in her head, but they're all, they are not, it's not a pathology, <laughs> it is just actually literally the multiple voices that we all carry around within us, um, and the sort of sense of, of different people's judgment that we carry within us, and the, um, the languages and the, uh, the 
measurements of ourselves that we have sort of internalized. And sort of so within an artistic context, we can put those in different bodies and sort of create a way of talking about and exploring that. Um, and then all you can do is sort of create something that does something. How culturally specific do you think these things are? I mean, you, Lindy mentioned Scotland as a specific context that we're in now. Tony, you've done your work in different cultural contexts. How universal do you think these? These issues and these ways of dealing with them are. I think um, every culture has its own um, instigators of the anxiety and the perpetrators of those anxieties. Um, so, whatever the instigators are, we, we arrive at the same place. Um, and um, just what Linda is saying about. Um, the arts being important in highlighting something. I, I don't know if this is true. Those who know more about uh, Egyptology can correct me, but apparently pharaohs uh, hosted big banquets. And so often during the banquet, um, one of the courtiers would walk around the room carrying a skeleton to remind people not to get too carried away. <laughs> this is very cool end up. So I think, uh, <laughs> I think that I think uh, that there is some there is some intention uh, with, with the creative arts to, to kind of bring these things that we maybe don't uh, want to speak about in um, in Zimbabwe at the moment. Um, uh, there is a project uh, that is creating uh, a new lexicon for talking about mental health because most of the language that is used around mental illness is always very negative and um, just as, as you know it's sort of really dismissive and so that kind of effort is, is sometimes required just to remind us that you know we we are implicated in, uh, in this whole thing. Kevin you're gonna bring a skeleton on stage with you at Noiriki next time? Uh, we once brought a pig's head <laughs> Two pigs' heads uh, on the night of the royal wedding. I won't go into the details of why. No, I mean, we really do. We live in an irrational time. It doesn't make any sense, you know, the things that are happening, why people vote and why people act in that way. Forward. And it can be, uh, you know, art is trying to make sense of that, trying to bring some meaning to your own personal life and the life of people around about you. So we are in, we are in a, I call it an age of anxiety, when we were talking about it the last time, uh, and it's not like looking at it, this is not some new, not ordinary book, this book, The Age of Anxiety, just after the Second World War, and Freud was a problem with anxiety, and in 1936, probably here, the concept of anxiety, 1844, Spinoza, Lennon, Dredd, and the 18th century speaking, this is not something that's new, but there seems to be cycles, and there seems to be an increased cycle of anxiety. Uh, I got this thing from Anxiety UK, since the downturn in 2008, we've seen increased calls for help. So there is a time with economics and class that's happened and it's making things worse and people do need art and they need to express themselves or really link into that. It's, uh, it's very important to encourage it in a lot of different ways that you're, you can see it, you can see art changing. If you're really following what's happening globally, and this is a global thing, the nature of art, poetry and film, uh, 
visual art, it's actually changing since 2008. I did an analysis of poetry anthologies, uh, 2007, 2006, and the content has actually changed now. Uh, films, documentaries, there's actually a shift taking place because it's less personal, you know, art for art's sake, and it's more connected into what's happening here. And there is anxiety through everything, you know, it's, there's no doubt about it. So uh, we can't get away from that. Uh, if you're creating art, you can't be a non-social person. As simple as that. You just can't. You can't. You can't. Even words. Everything. You can't paint pictures and words because words are actually a, something that we create collectively by society. You can't get away from that. It's a very. And it's not. That. That's in contrast because that's one side. The other side of it is that we live in a kind of talk. I'd say a mental and toxic environment. Uh, it's dominated by advertising and news media. And advertising, you can take any advert you want, but any commercial product is based on a lie. You can analyze it, and it's a lie. So our entire cultural environment is based on the bombardment of lies that are created by these lie machines. And then you've got the news peddling. They want people to be afraid. You know, every story is about you know social anxiety, social unrest. Uh, what's coming at you? You should be living in fear and anxiety. So that's the other side of it, and it is it's toxic. It's a very toxic environment, and how that can affect people's mental health—it's just not. It's not even possible that it can affect people's mental health. And the fact that it's getting more toxic with social media and the way it interacts with all of this is there's problems here. I think art is one of the ways you have to use to. Counterpart that you know we are alive and here. We don't want to be part of a toxic environment. We want to create to try and uh, express ourselves and connect with other people. So the way it's my art and the way that we can do so. Social media seems to be coming up a lot. <laughs> um, what about the positive side of having that constant connectedness? Is that does that balance out the negative, you know, the, the constant noise, the thing in your pocket that tells you that you're not good enough or that you need to buy something? What about the fact that it permits people who perhaps are terribly socially anxious or who are going through difficult times to connect with people without maybe going through very stressful situations that involve face-to-face -face meeting? Well, uh, yeah, that's a fair, I mean, I, I'm to Scotland and uh, my son has an amazing relationship with his grandmother who he speaks to every day on FaceTime and he reads the story in Daphne um, and that is an example of how technology is keeping them connected. I think that's a very personal one-on-one -on -one situation still um, and I'm trying to tell myself it's better than who's watching CBBs which I think he is. <laughs> um, uh, not that that happens too but um, but yeah, I think the, the constant connection, it's very complicated because um, there is genuine connection that happens, but I think that unfortunately, social media, we are, we are encouraged to create media, mediatized versions of ourselves, and they are not necessarily always our true selves, but whatever that is, I don't know. Um, and so, I think that there is a kind of a sense of um, having to present a persona sometimes that is um, our, our best self and then because that's what we're getting back we feel that other people are always in a great place as well. Um, I don't know if that's a particularly a Facebook kind of a thing but it, 
happens if it feels that way to me. So the level of actual true connection that's happening sometimes I'm not sure about. Um, and equally with Twitter, I think it can be this kind of almost a portrait of having multiple voices in your head, many of which are telling you things that are making you more anxious than you already are. And yet, if we switch off, we feel punished, and we feel disconnected, we feel we're losing out. And so there's something there that's not, there is the, it's like anything, there is the potential for connection, but whether that's how it's actually being used, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. <coughs> you mentioned this kind of contagion of, I had a bad day, I want everyone else to have part of my bad day. There is that feeling of an outlet, like something tiny happens, somebody's reach you on public transport, talk about it on Facebook, everyone knows that's terrible. Um, is there a positive side to that as well, that the sort of solace that can come from a lot of people saying, we still love you? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, I think the most important thing here is we, we have a choice to make with this technology. And behind the technology, it's, it's us. Um, so that's one thing we need to uh, remember and and it's a, it's also about our um, our personal relationships and how those build up. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, quite recently, um, I just finished a long-term uh, project, and as we were kind of closing and having our final symposium, I, I mentioned. Some, I just said, "Oh, you know." This thing has come up quite a few times, and I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand it. And you might believe everybody says, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two years later, you know, so, <laughs> so so yeah, this idea that uh, you know we, we keep up, we keep up these uh, appearances. One comedian was saying recently that. Um, when we meet people, they're not meeting us, they're meeting other people. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I think the needs, um, I think our choices are around, you know, having the people who can really tell us how it is. I mean, my older brother says that, you know, if you don't have people who can tell you that you've got a, a way in the world, then you, you know, you need the people who can really and so you need you need the, the balance of that as well as you know um, when, when we interact with the, with all these other things then you know you can come back. Um, I just want to say one thing quickly about um, a kind of a, a self-cautionary thing um, for creative artists. Sometimes we, we forget we kind of take this heroic thing of saying we are, we get it, you know we are we're flexible. We're, but there's a danger that we don't keep an eye on on that, and we need to keep looking for a humble place. That we need to keep looking out for the lessons that, that we pick up, because we can very easily get carried away. And, uh, and sometimes the, the arts can be inaccessible. I mean, we can talk all day about design of buildings, galleries, you know, sometimes. So, another thing. No, that's, yeah, I mean, this sort of goes back to something Kevin was saying about that idea of art being by its very nature collective, and in, in a way that, that is often contradicted by a public message that says artists are self-indulgent, they're insular, you know, and actually there are similar messages about people with mental health issues, but they're basically sort of self-obsessed, or they, they're constantly thinking about their own little problems. Is there a way of making that sort of idea of a collective approach to mental health more 
more of a possible social thing. Um, definitely. I mean, art is so political, isn't it? And you serve as user of this very political, or can be political. Um, I think there's been a lot of focus in, in Scotland in recent years on recovery and, and living well, despite your, your mental health problems. And some of that's been really, really good, but some of it's been about individuals as opposed to the collective. And actually, why I really like the um, Scottish Mental Health Arts Film Festival is it's an opportunity for people to collectively come together and create art and take people into different spaces, into spaces in people's heads or in physical spaces as well that people maybe don't feel they have a right to access. So I think if I have my way, clay, I would convert a lot of our traditional health spend into more money for arts and health. Because I think by creating the space for people to come together, whether that's to create a film, a performance, a film, whatever, the value of that is massive. And I see it all the time with people that I work with. Well, what do you think about that, Kevin? Because that, that idea of the arts being sort of inaccessible of only for a certain class of people, that's a, a permanent frustration for a lot of people working in the arts. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, money into the arts is something that it shouldn't really be a no-brainer uh, for so many reasons. I mean, I've done all sorts of experiments. Uh, for example, there's an experiment in the 1980s uh, where the Tory government decided to take was 43 of the most dangerous criminals in Scotland and putting them all into Barlini special unit. It finished at the end of the 80s and it took you know, many people, the people I know, uh, I worked with one of Hugh Collins on his uh, second part of his autobiography and these were, the, these were the most dangerous criminals in Scotland and they gave them scalpels, they gave them chisels and they asked them to create art. Now as far as I know, I think only one of them re-offended out of all these guys over there. And these were really, you know, these were seen as very dangerous people and gangs, you know, violent criminals. Uh, and it worked. These were working class guys. Uh, it works. And everybody's got different examples of places where art's been put into. And they scrapped that. They scrapped that whole concept. Uh, why they scrapped it? I, I, I find it crazy in its own way that the Tory government even did it in Scotland and then finished it. It's never been taken up, that kind of thing, taking people out of what is a, a very unnatural environment in a prison. You can, and I've worked in a few prisons, I've worked uh, in Greenock, I've worked in Kilmarnock, and creating poetry and art is, is an incredible thing. The results you see is an incredible thing. The amount of talent is wasted. And again, it comes back to working class people uh, in poverty and going into crime, and their talents were never given full expression. So, in some ways, the cities are a micro, you know, prisons are a microcosm of a city. I think a city is a very unnatural place for human beings to live. It's so complex, there's so many people crushed together that we need more money in the arts and city for people to express themselves and access from every age, from primary school, school, right the way through and targeting it. And every single penny spent on arts is going to be returned as a saving. We have reductions in health service, reductions in crime. It's a total no-brainer. You know, I don't understand why the artists pumping millions and millions of pounds into the arts, continually pumping more and more in than you could ever. They, they should be doubling and trebling the spend because it's all going to come back, you know, socially, definitely. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
who, who do we vote for for that to happen? <laughs> um, let's go to the audience. If anyone would like to ask anyone on the panel a question or a comment on something that you've heard, we're just going to get a mic ready. Hi there. Um, just to say that what I found um, what you, you were saying was really interesting um, from everyone, but just to talk about a general personal source of anxiety for me at the moment is um, is is white Audi drivers sitting directly behind me on the motorway at 70 miles per hour. Uh, but Ken, that's a joke, but, <laughs> but it's actually a more serious, serious point. And as, a, as an artist, um, I work a lot in the community and I, I, go into, um, I go into quite large housing schemes. And, and what I'm noticing a lot, is something to pick up on what Kevin and Linda was saying, about class and poverty, I notice a lot of sort of aspirational symbols within the communities, like like these huge cars, and and I go into Silverburn shopping centre a lot, which is a huge shopping centre in Glasgow, and it seems to me that how do we reach the people in these huge estates with maybe maybe who are really affected by advertising and media, and how do we reach these people through visual arts? And as you say, the visual arts are often perceived as something for the middle classes or something separate that they can't access. And how do we reach that in a way that's not preachy or, or talking down to people? I think that's quite an important question. Just, Thank you. Anybody want to comment on that? I think if we knew that, that would be the holy there's also um, the question of the choices that we make with our work and, and remembering. I think one of the things that I've noticed a lot, the scenario describing, I mean, we, the way funding works sometimes, you um, artists need need the work and you find you find yourself sometimes um, quoting it because the funding always has um, you know ties to it. So it's about us being aware that whatever we're doing, we are carrying another agenda, not just the creative agenda, there's more to it. So it's it's being aware and, and trying to make you know uh, brave decisions around how we do, how we do our work again. It's also another part of it. I think it's also about going to the places where people are and where people live. So there's some amazing art stuff happening in your hospital in the Glen and talking to people about what is it that they want to create in their environment. Does someone else I, um, I work um, as both like uh, as well as a facilitator of like art through like medium of hip hop and uh, creative writing, sometimes poetry, and I also work as a counselling psychotherapist. Um, sometimes what I find uh, with people that most need the things that we would like to offer, they can't accept it offer it to themselves um, through lack of shame and self worth and all these kind of things. And I wonder, as community, how do we um, 
invite, because I think some of, it, some of it's about open door and how we show people the way. And I think a lot of this, like you speak about the class aspect, which is huge, because I come from very like low class, and then how I've managed to get to where I am is just like, um, I first through that kind of development of self-worth. So some of these people wouldn't even, or, or there'd be so much stigma, even around like stigma of mental health, but there's stigma of art, um, stigma that, that's, you know, putting just negative derogatory. So just thinking about how do we as a community it kind of in, in, invite and make this less kind of, um, I suppose, far away, almost, because it, it feels like, um, yeah, a lot of people I work with don't even, uh, I suppose some of it's like funding. I've worked in a project for maybe a year or two, and just as I'm leaving, the person's ready, you know, and that's a really sad thing, but that's a real reality. Yeah. So just kind of wonder about, I mean, what is it we can keep doing to help inviting that and opening that door for people? Yeah, I, I think you've touched on two things there that I've certainly experienced as an artist who works in various community settings and prisons and hospitals and schools and um, is that uh, as a community artist a lot of the time when you you spend a lot of your time trying to find the people and trying to and trying to create a space where people can will access what what you're offering but also you get parachuted into to places for lengths of time just when you're sort of establishing a connection and there's and just when potentially you're establishing a group that could sustain itself without you being there and you get taken out again and so and it does also come back to um, what we're saying on about creating art spaces accessible to everybody that are there on a long-term basis and um, uh, but it's, it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult one. It's certainly something that I've struggled with in my practice, a sort of a feeling of what is the legacy of what I'm doing, um, and how do I, how, uh, what, how, how can we talk to our funders about what, what we feel we need on ground? Uh, I guess I have two points. Um, one of which refers back to this idea of how do we get people from, I guess, working class backgrounds involved in the arts. I'm from a working class background. I went to the most violent school in Scotland. Um, and I guess what got me interested in the arts was having a really good teacher um, who introduced me to Linda Radley, actually. <laughs> and that's how I got into making performance. Um, and I, I think what Linda said about people in my generation really struck a chord with me because the markers of, you know, people my age all the time talk about how they don't feel like they're a proper adult yet. And they complain about this all the time because they're maybe working two jobs, they're maybe working a full-time job that just pays minimum wage. And I keep having to tell my friends the markers of what adulthood was for our parents has changed. We don't have access to salary jobs, we don't have access to housing, and so you can't compare yourself to that. And for people in my situation, so I work part-time, I study a master's, and I also do freelance artwork, we have a problem with being high-functioning, where we have to pretend like we're fine all the time. And so I've kind of, a quote stuck out to me, I can't remember who said it, um, that's something that's become a practice of mine that says, self-care is not selfish, it's an act of political warfare, and I think that we need to talk more about self-care and how that can help 
deal with some of these situations. Sorry, what was your name? Uh, Connor. Connor. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head here, but you meet some a teacher. Uh, I've spoken to many writers about this, and I mentioned it goes across all the arts. Is once you get talking to policy, it was this teacher at school that gave me, you know, they said, that's really good, and gave me some encouragement. And it goes right across, and I'll ask somebody you meet. This is why it's not always, this is not always an institutional thing. It's not like we have to build these institutions. And so I like that old, uh, I don't know if it's Pearl of Freire, that each one, each one. And it's something that the knowledge you have, you know, I could, I could go back to film. I remember the, you know, the Bill Douglas uh, trilogy he made in the working class areas of uh, New Craig Hall in Edinburgh. And then the third part of the trilogy, he's in the army in the Middle East, and then he meets someone who gives him the books and encourages him. And that sets up a very biographical piece uh, he made. And that's like that. So, you know, if you're involved in the arts, I feel it's a duty as somebody's in the arts. To try and connect with people and encourage people all the time. It's, that's your, because that, that's what happened to me. And then with Duncan McLean, when I was down in the Monster Link, actually in the Muir House Library, it was Duncan McLean that took me under his wing. James Kelman had taken Duncan McLean under his wing. Uh, uh, there's a professor in Glasgow taking Jim Kelman under his wing, and it all goes back. None of us are coming to this on our own. So you don't need an institution. You've got something you have to you have to you've got a duty as an artist to encourage other people's creativity and try and nurture it and find it, you know, help them find a way to express it. Hi there. Um, just when you're talking about institutions and um, from my work in the community, what I'm seeing is that the NHS spend a lot of money trying to make people well, not always successfully. Well, the, um, the welfare system is actually making them ill through means tests and sanctions, all sorts of systems. Um, and then, uh, Kevin, you were talking about your daughter being living in maps, and that's also something that, that comes up a lot. And one of the things that I've been uh, listening to quite a, a, a bit recently that I feel might solve a lot of this is the basic the citizens basic universal income and I'm just wondering if the panel see you nod in your head so I'm just wondering what the panel's thoughts are on that. I think it's um, it becomes a right, doesn't it? So it's everybody's entitled to it, and it's not something that um, the the language, the, the discourse around um, people claiming benefits just appalls me. The way that people are spoken about, the way that they're demonised in the media, um, I I just find that when you look at the language that's being used about people who are struggling to survive, it's absolutely appalling, and then we wonder why our referrals to our mental health services are going through the roof. We wonder why we're talking about children's mental health and well-being, but we're talking about it in the context of it being the individual children that are getting better, as opposed to their education is being limited. We don't have arts and education in the same way that we did when I was younger, certainly. I think the point that um, 
that I was making <coughs> is so important about that ability to connect with a single individual and what's happening a lot at the moment around discussion about children's mental health and well-being, which I really welcome, is people are beginning to recognise for every single children there's sometimes just one person in their life that is the important person that they're connected with and it might be their parent, it might be their grandmother, it might be their teacher,
number of people that come, all the data, data crunch, and you don't get the actual reality of the impact that you're seeing uh, through those kind of measurements. It's also, we're living in an age where artists are struggling to make a living, and it's partly because of the political environment we're living in, it's becoming quite anti-arts and anti-intellectual at uh, the government level, but it's also the changes in technology, especially digital technology, has made it very difficult for musicians and writers to earn a living. Uh, so it makes sense to employ musicians, artists, writers, to go to schools and to go to communities, especially the communities that have got the least amount of uh, art infrastructure, and talk to people and inspire people so that the artists can actually earn a living and put something back into the community at the same time. It makes, it makes total sense. Uh, and I, it's not really happening in the scale I would like to see it. And I think and Scotland always prides itself on its culture and art and its writing and its literature in the past. But you look at Alistair Gray and Jim Kelly. Alistair Gray said the only way you can write is, a, is by going on the door. That's how you wrote that. That's not even an option anymore you know, because of the changes in legislation. And Jim Kelman, you know, a couple of years ago, the report is on 15,000 a year. Our Beckett, our Kafka, is on 15,000 a year. It's terribly hard. Me, our country, how have we ended up in this situation? So, you need to find a way that artists can make a living and make a contribution beyond just their art. And also be inspired because I personally feel like there's two strands to my practice one of which is the work that I make myself, and one of which is the other strand is the, is the work that I create with other people or how I sort of help them. But I, that helps me to stay connected and it helps me to leave my house, which is important. And it's hugely inspiring and beneficial to me as well. So there is a feedback loop that's really important there. Well, this seems like an inspiring note on which to end. Um, I want to thank the audience for your great comments and questions. And thank you very much for the panel, Kevin, Linda, and the